Inclusion and diversity is a very important part of our business. We're, we're a service company. That means we have a lot of people in our company. And you've recognized before that the next year has a more diverse workforce than the national average. We're very proud of that. And, yeah. and, and we don't do it by looking at quotas as much as we do by creating a level playing field, looking for the right people for the right job that like to work in a team environment in a challenging atmosphere where promotions is based you know, not on age or nationality or gender, but on, you know, your capabilities and, and your contributions. And that attracts the kind of people we like having on our team. And it's, it's a diverse, it's a diverse story. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by PISA, the Petroleum Equipment and Services Association, Locked In Companies, and Galtway Marketing. This is Leslie Beyer with the Energy and Transition podcast from the Fletcher Azul studio here in Houston, Texas. Um, today, we're so happy to have our second guest on this Energy and Transition podcast, Robert Drummond, President and CEO of Next Tier Oilfield Solutions. Thank you for being here, Robert. Hey, thank you, Leslie. I'm honored. Yes. What a, what a great facility we have here. Thank you. I know that I'm so impressed with what Josh and David have been able to do. Um, they're so passionate about getting that oilfield message out. Um, and they have really set us up for success in this room. I can agree with that. And you're right about our message. And when you have this kind of professional setting, we should be able to uh, carry that. I agree. I agree 100%. So um, like I said, you're our second guest. Thank you so much for coming on um, and trusting me to do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, this podcast, this energy and transition is really about talking about how companies in oil field services and upstream oil and gas are part of this transition, how what we do and the technology that we bring and how we're reducing carbon emissions is really a part of that. And oil and gas is not to be excluded. This is not a transition away from oil and gas. This is us stepping in and doing our part in the mix. Very well said. Thank you. Well, I know you have done so much at Next Tier. You are focused specifically. We're going to talk a lot about your digital transformation. You're really focused on, on that piece a lot of innovation around that. Can you tell us just a little bit, just to start out for those listeners that are unfamiliar with Next Tier? I know you, the product of the 2019 merger of equals with Keen and CNJ. You had to complete your your you know collaboration and transition in the middle of this pandemic environment, which must have been pretty nuts. But you came out great, great looking balance sheet. You know some synergies there achieved and realized. So, and you're still able to take that and focus on on innovation right now. So can you tell us just something about the business and where y'all are? Well, thank you. One thing I would say, it's kind of cool to be able to put two companies together, merger vehicles, and because of that, I, I, I got a great staff. Yeah. I mean, I got a bunch of good people working in, in our company. 
And we like to be this nimble company that can really help our customers improve their dollars per BOE. And everything that we do is focused on U.S. land and, and completions particularly. Right. You know, the technologies there have been, have been focused on making things more efficient. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything from, from uh, drilling efficiency into frack efficiency. And mm-hmm. that uh, there's been a significant improvement over the last number of years. Many times I get asked, are we at the end of that efficiency improvement? And I would say, you know, thanks to technologies like digital, we're really only just beginning. Yeah. Because efficiency has a broad definition. It's not just about how fast you can do things, but it's also about how cost effective you can mm-hmm. do things. So being nimble, we believe innovating and deploying technology that helps us move up that curve is, uh, is where, is where we're going to differentiate ourselves and having a digital platform to do that enables us to deploy all these new tools that are coming out like machine learning and artificial intelligence and right. things like that, that enable us to attack our extremely high operating cost base because mm-hmm. of all the machinery we have and as well as the logistics aspect. So for us as a company, we stay focused on that little sweet spot there. Yep. I think our customers like that and they looking for, you know, partners to help them, help, help them do that. We think about the aspect of, of digital, though, it's, it's, all, it's also a lot about taking the waste out of the system. Mm-hmm. And when you think about environmental impact, the footprint of our business, there's a lot of vehicles, a lot of trucks, a lot of moving commodities around, around the operations. So as we get smarter and more efficient and remove waste, when we're helping the footprint, we're helping the transition, and there's huge, huge opportunities for us to be a part of that uh, as a company and as a sector. I could not have said that better myself. I mean, the way you talk about efficiencies and how we're able to reduce the waste and, and the environmental footprint, that is why we're part of energy transition. Of like, course that's we are. the whole point. It is. Um, and really, I love your leadership here on this because, you know, people need to see that we are taking an active role as a solution provider in this. There's no binary choice between renewables and oil and gas. Look, our our sector's full of engineers and scientists. I mean, we love the environment. We know about it. We studied it. We want to be a part of fixing it or keeping it better constantly. So absolutely, uh, I think most like-minded people think that we need every energy source for now and in the future. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Balancing the economic impact with the environmental impact with the need. I mean, our sector has provided affordable and reliable energy for people all over the world, making their lives better and safer. I mean, it's not, I'm proud to be a part, you know, of this sector. In fact, both of my daughters have joined the sector. I didn't know that. Yeah, in the last couple of years. Yeah. uh, one works for uh, EOG okay. and one for Shell. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm real proud of them for, uh, you know, following me into the sector. That's fantastic. Well, I agree. You know, as a recent, uh, somewhat recent within the past eight or nine years, entrant into the sector, you know, understanding energy for me, it's real easy to get behind the moral case for what we do because of exactly what you said, how we provide energy for this glow, you know, the growing world population. That's right. There's 4 billion people in the non-OECD countries that need access to energy. And oil and gas is a very important part of that. It, it is. And, you know, there, there, that message is 
beginning to be heard more, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think people deserve to hear both sides of every story. Right. You know, and as a sector, I think we've been somewhat slow to communicate what we do. I mean, like I said before, a lot of engineers and scientists, we're all trying to make things better and, and working in our own companies and working with our customers to make things happen. And maybe less on the narrative. And I think I, as a, as a leader, have rep, uh, recognized that, uh, that we fell behind. I fell behind personally. One of the reasons I wanted to do this interview was to maybe get my voice out there as one person who spent my entire career in this sector. And I think we're doing a, the right thing on so many fronts yeah. to the good of society in general. I appreciate so much that you would do that because not every CEO out there of, of the companies that we're involved with, you know, is willing to come forward and, and talk about this because, you know, it can get a little dicey, I guess, um, especially in a politically charged environment. Energy is such an important, you know, piece of, of that um, discussion right now politically, but it's going to require leadership from individuals like yourself. And, and I appreciate you doing it and, and leadership from your team. And we, before we sat down, we were talking about how great your team is. You've got some fantastic talent out there. I'm going to throw a shout out to Jamie Elrod, flipping the barrel. Great ne next year person who's just elevating how we talk about the oil field. And she and Maciel are just really bringing a spotlight to how great this this sector Don't is. Don't you just love to see the young people getting that uh, excited about something as important as this? Yes. And they're digging deeper and understanding the issues and talking to all the people. I mean, yeah. I got a lot of respect for, for anybody willing to do that. Right. And, and I'm I got, so glad Jamie's on our team. That's <laughs> right. I was just going to say, I have a lot of respect for you who are willing to look at that and be like, oh, hey, that's what we need. Let's promote and elevate that. That's what inclusion and diversity is. It is. It's seeing, you know, something that's a little bit different from a different perspective and saying, let's put a spotlight on that and bring it forward. So I, I love to see it. Thank you. And, uh, you know, for us. Inclusion and diversity is a very important part of our business. We're, we're a service company. That means we have a lot of people in our company. And you've recognized before that the next year has a more diverse uh, workforce than the national average. We're very proud of that. And, yeah. and, and we don't do it by looking at quotas as much as we do by creating a level playing field, uh, looking for the right people for the right job that like to work in a team environment in a challenging atmosphere where promotions is based you know, not on age or nationality or gender, but on, you know, your capabilities and, and your contributions. And that attracts the kind of people we like having on our team. And it's, it's a diverse, it's a diverse story. So it's like all we need to do is communicate what we're doing. And, and it's obvious that uh, a lot of people like to be a part of it. I was so impressed when I saw that 30% of your workforce is diverse, 35% of your leadership team. You know, at PISA, we did a study across OFS and found, you know, that female and other diverse leadership is very, very low. I haven't seen other companies up there at 35 percent. It's just extraordinary. And well, when you recruit where you work and recruit to a, a population that's interfacing with your customer base. Yeah, I think it's natural and uh, it's not nothing that has to be forced. If somebody sees our industry different than that. I would really want to be able to see us do a better job at the industry communicating what we do do. That's right. Because the core values of um, our company and many of our customers' companies is about doing the right thing. It's about innovating, and, it, and it's about taking initiative and those kind of things. And when you have that kind of arrangement, there's people from all over the society you must have in your organization. 
That's right. You're going to be competitive. Those diverse points of view, just diverse backgrounds are going to help drive the this next step that we need to take. You know, what got us to this point ain't going to be what gets us to the next point. Well, that's so true. And the status quo just doesn't work in oil and gas, particularly, you know, maybe I'm a little biased, but in U.S. land, because things move so fast. Mm-hmm. And you think about we put two companies together and three or four months, and then we had to basically you know, rationalize the company to the new, to the new uh, post-COVID activity world. And this is all happening in, in, in weeks and months. And, yeah. You know, things that general industry would take years to adapt to. So it, you're right. It's a, it's a fast pace. So you were doing all of this in the middle. There's critical infrastructure designation for oil field services. So we had to keep working through all this. We had people in close quarters on rigs. We had people in trucks, but we still had to keep them safe and respect CDC and OSHA guidance. How did that work? How were you able to, to manage that? Look, there, there's no way you can say enough good about all the people who are involved in making that happen. I mean, this is a very proactive process, you know, when it comes to risk management. You know, having to quarantine people that were in contact with somebody else who didn't have it, all the testing procedures yeah. and protocols, the interface between you and your vendors and you and your customers, this all went went on really without a hitch. Operations did not slow down very much mm-hmm. other than the overall activity decline. Where we were working, we were working almost at the same level of efficiency that we ever have. And that didn't come by accident. And I, my hat's off to my team, who I know specifically what they were doing. is incredible. And then a support network for the people who support the people in the field. We're doing that working from home a scenario they had never done before. And, you know, I sat back and was concerned perhaps in the beginning, would we be efficient? Would we be even be able to be successful to do it? And I would say that maybe in some cases we were more efficient, you know, and and even benefited maybe, uh, you know, from the fact that we're going to do that in the future too. I think some, we're going to keep, keep one of the lessons learned, I think will be that we'll have more flexible work schedules. And I think that's going to be more attractive place to work. Because of that, if a couple of days a week, your task-oriented part of your job you do from your home mm-hmm. and the more strategic interfacing part of your job you do, you know, two or three days a week. Right. We're going to make this work, I think. Well, that flexibility. We've got to learn. we got to get positive from some, some of this negative. Oh, yeah, we do. I, <laughs> I love picking out the positives. But, you know, on that topic, that is 100% why we talk so much about why ESG is not just a nice-to-have. It's a must-have because that social piece, that taking care of your people, that is what we were focused on this whole time. You know, that was that was us showing, you know, our our approach there. So I I just commend you for that. And and I know that next year is focused on ESG. I know that you have a lot of statements externally on that. And yes. it's definitely an area of focus. But that S piece is really, I think, what we saw come out of this COVID situation. No, that's that's so true. And I think that, you know, we're very proud of our particular company performance when it comes to safety and risk management. Put two companies together and we got better record today than we had either one of them individually, historically. Mm-hmm. So that's the foundation that it was built on. But when you think about the S, which is not as much emphasis on as the E in ESG, I would say, as management, we ought to be thinking about that constantly and how we invest in our people yep. so that based on the foundations of doing things right in risk management and safety, investing in people 
so that they can become to understand that from the very beginnings of their career, which we do. Maybe we don't talk about it as much as we should, mm-hmm. but that will be the foundations that create the whole environment that ESG is supposed to create. It will. And that is, at the end of the day, all of the ESG elements, that's risk mitigation. You know, taking care of your people, knowing that that's what it's going to require to do business right. Yes. Um, and because it's the right thing, you know, I, I see it as an opportunity for our members, you know, to really show to, and be thoughtful about what they're doing there. Look, I think that that's exactly right. And one of the things I've really been impressed with your leadership in PISA has Thank been you. that you created this this committee around ESG. When you, when you think about safety first, it's one of those areas that collaborating across service companies, it goes on because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing something that's making the workforce safer or reducing risk and I share it, I'm doing good for the sector, for my customers, for everybody and vice versa. And we've done that. We're hesitant to share technology and all the other things mm-hmm. that are competitive in nature. But when you look at ESG, that whole emphasis on the environment and governance and, and social, the platform that you've created enables that sharing to occur across companies of all sizes. I mean, you don't have to be small to be able to benefit or appreciate that. And I would I would say that uh, that's going to take our industry a, a step up uh, up the curve that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So uh, kudos for doing that. I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, I appreciate you being on the board and being behind me in that push when, you know, three, four years ago, I, you know, I was saying, let's get on this ESG thing. And there were still people that, you know, we dealt with that were like, I don't I don't know if that's reality. Um, and I appreciate your support saying, yeah, you know, we need to take a leadership role. This is critical and important, and and it's important for PISA. Well, you're right. And I think maybe three or four years ago, many of us, maybe we didn't know exactly what we were talking about. I mean, we were doing governance, and we were doing doing all the things socially, and we all had environmental objectives and Mm -hmm. safety objectives. We were were all working in that direction, but having a narrative and a strategy around Uh it, that's what's happening now, and moving companies down similar paths, but we all have our own unique aspects to it. But one area that we're working on that I'm excited about on the east side really is that when you look at greenhouse gas productions that have occurred in the U.S. economy, you know, mm-hmm. smaller carbon footprint in the United States versus most of the rest of the world, it's been driven by putting more natural gas in the system yes. and then displacing, you know, less clean fuels, maybe like coal. And that's happened, and, and that's a statistical fact. Inside our sector, there's opportunities to do the same by displacing diesel with mm-hmm. natural gas. And besides digital, which we have a huge emphasis on and, and, and a big investment theme around, it's also an investment theme we have around converting more and more to, re- to, to natural gas and reducing diesel consumption in general. Right. Less equipment on location, less waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, less traffic, less wait time, all those things are uh, smart investments with a return that are also have a huge environmental benefit. So, That's right. I mean, if we, capital's tight in our sector. Oh, man. So if we do the right, you have to make right the right investments. So if you're making one that's got a good return as well as a good impact uh, on the environment, I mean, that's a, an easy choice. Agreed 100%. And I know next year was one of the first to, to roll out your tier four and dual fuel 
Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that reduces emissions and what may be next on the horizon for you? The Petroleum Equipment and Services Association is the global trade association for the oilfield services sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. We support OFS in international trade, supply chain, health and safety, environmental policy, and a number of other areas. Our Energy Transition Committee is focused on sharing best practices in sustainability, collaboration with renewables technologies, and driving a smart energy transition. Please join us at PISA.org. Well, I appreciate you asking about that because uh, it it is an area, it's a sector right now that's challenged when it comes to supply and demand. So making an investment in capacity would be frowned upon in the financial markets. So we've been doing is converting our traditional fleet from diesel burning to natural gas. And we've been doing that for a number of years, just on a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. And so now we're growing aggressively to increase the percentage of our fleet that burns natural gas. And you mentioned tier four engines. They can convert as much as 80% of the diesel burn to natural gas. So the emission reductions are huge right. in that in that arena, and many people would argue that it's uh, better even than a turbine-powered frack fleet that some of the newest electrical fleets have as far as emission reductions. So we're not expert in that area, but we know for sure burning less diesel to the extent of 80% less is moving in the right direction. So we're, we're working and investing on that power solution in mm-hmm. general for frack. We believe that dual fuel engines like that are a bridge into the future where you become purely natural gas consuming. Mm -hmm. And uh, that will be a balance of capital investment, you know, with the timing and the growth, return to growth of activity in in the marketplace. So that's the balance that, that that we're dealing with. And the one thing for sure, back to your original point, is that the status quo is not it. And it probably never will be. So the only thing that stays the same is you got a lot of change. <laughs> That's right. And we've got to keep reinventing ourselves and keep innovating and finding new ways to achieve these goals. That's right. And uh, I think that uh, that's where we're headed. You, you asked me about that investment, and we mentioned digital earlier. And mm-hmm. I think there's two two areas. The one I just spoke about is one, but maybe more important and more enabling in general is around the conversion to to a data-driven company right. and digital. You know, you used to hear digital, it was becoming a buzzword, and people were going, what does that mean? It means a lot of different things. But for us, we decided to go down this path almost two years ago, making an investment to first put the plumbing in place so that all the data from all the different machinery you have and all the different business systems all go into a and a unified data model where you can then query and start doing machine learning and mm-hmm. using artificial intelligence to run your operations. So we got all of that in place. Then we started, we built what we uh, rolled out recently called Next Hub. It's like our operations center in Houston where we bring in kind of three areas of the way we run the business. The things that went on in the frack van where all the field engineers are displaced all throughout the field are now mostly centered in Houston. So a guy can now watch, you know, multiple uh, frack jobs simultaneously yeah. instead of just one. So one, his learning curve is going straight up. He right. can see a lot more. It's great it's great for the for the individual. And then the second is around equipment health monitoring. Mm-hmm. 
it's almost the beginning of Internet of Things. These are all the sensors that are on the diesel engines, mm-hmm. the transmissions and the pumps that are all bringing us data in. It's telling us what its health is. Right. Hey, I need to be intervened here, pulled out. Let's fix this issue before it becomes broken and cost, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to fix. Or maybe that I'm over-maintaining it or under-maintaining it, and it's, the, it's just not optimal in cost that way. So that there's an avenue of there. So that's two channels. And the third is around logistics management, like all of the sand movement, water movement, mm-hmm. uh, chemical movement. This logistics network driven by artificial intelligence that focuses on getting the commodity landed at the lowest cost. Maybe it's three or four different mine sources, different road paths as the weather changes or as conditions change. The AI jumps in and says, hey, let's go instead of routing this one here, route that one there. These things end up having a big impact. So it eliminates the merge, the wait time that's going on, uh, lowering the cost for uh, for us and the operator. So th- this is digital enabling a whole do- new way of doing work. So our effort around this is real yeah, and it's in place today and people like working in that environment. I mean, if you're a field engineer and you come in from, uh, I mean, it doesn't replace the need to be in the field, right? but it enhances it. Portion of the field engineers will be able to come in, you know, do their 12 hour shift or eight hour shift and get replaced by someone else. And they go to a nice restaurant in Houston <laughs> or, you know, and the next, and, you know, the next, the next year they may be in the field, but the, but the bottom line is the ability to leverage talent across a broader spectrum mm-hmm. of activity is being enabled by digital. It's just a few examples. Right. So for us, doing that is a foundation of all the rest of our investing. Even more examples would be as you have a dual fuel engine and you have the data coming in telling you how much conversion is going from diesel to natural gas and being able to tweak the engine performance to increase the levels of natural gas burn. Right. And this is an environmental impact enabled by too. digital, for example. Well, I, I think the common theme in all of that is is that it drives the efficiency and lowers the carbon emissions and certainly, you know, enables this this new workforce to be able to do more. So speaking of that talent, um, do we need to reskill our existing OFS talent? Do we need to recruit different kinds of people that are, you know, that understand, you know, automation and AI and all these things? And how are we going to do that? Look, this is like not a challenge, but more of a pleasure because the talent exists in this world. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all living in an environment where we're using our data more and more on our cell phones and our computers and uh, we're living it all around us. So it's odd if you come to work and you're not using that the -hmm. same way. So people are going to embracing it already. Do we need to retrain everybody in in the oil field? I would say no, but many people already know enough. We put them in the right process. I had a cool experience when I went and visited Next Hub recently to the equipment health monitoring section of the hub. And I have uh, uh, two leaders in that. One is a mechanical expert. He was a 30 plus year person who knows, you know, all the ins and outs about the equipment. Right next to him, a young field engineer that knows everything about what we're trying to accomplish with the digital aspects and 
the intervention processes and the visualization of how we know what's happening in real time. And they were shoulder to shoulder, just like, I mean, they were a team. Yeah. And that's a good example of how that could work as we deploy it, you know, throughout the entire sector. I love to hear that. That's fun. That is fun. And I think if more people understood that that's what it looks like, they'd want to come work with us. They do. And they will. But again, it goes back to our narrative and, and being, getting that out there more. You know, when we recruit uh, now, it'll be easy for us to do that in Next Hub. But, uh, you know, previously, you know, Hollywood doesn't always project us into the, into the young people's uh, in, uh, world in the way that it really is. No, it doesn't. Um, and they have a really loud voice that's right. able to penetrate a lot of brains. Um, and I, I think, and, and we talked about this, you know, our industry has got to get better about talking about what we do. The yes. moral case is behind us, how we lift people out of energy poverty. Um, and the role that oil and gas has in that, I think, is just so critical. It is. And I think people are catching on more and more. You know, other a industries that I've been, uh, associations I've been involved, uh, like NOIA, uh -huh. had that uh, mobile learning unit that right. we were sending around the U.S. to different elementary school level people mm -hmm. and showing them a little bit about science and working in a little bit about our sector. Mm -hmm. And I think the process about educating uh, it's something we need to take on because, as you said, the voice uh, is pretty loud on the other side sometimes that are, have, have a one-sided view and having a balanced discussion where all the data is on the table. I believe people are smart enough to decide the right thing on their own, given all the information. I think they are, too. And I think that applies at the elementary school level. And not to draw a parallel, but I think it also applies at the congressional level. <laughs> you know, I mean, if explained correctly enough. And a member, any given member of Congress has to be, you know, three inches deep on so many issues. Yes. Um, and the unfortunate fact is, you know, they are, they keep hearing oil and gas is bad. Renewables are good. We don't see that there are different elements of each of them. Yes. Um, the parts of petrochemicals and hydrocarbons that actually even go into renewables, you know, are sometimes lost. So, you know, what guidance do you have for us as a sector? We get up to Washington, you know, we take our board up there. There are non-traditional allies, you know, that we can speak to about the jobs and the innovation um, that comes out of oilfield services. You know, we try and explain to, uh, you know, a member that may not understand, here's how we support STEM. Here's how we, you know, try to create inclusive and, and diverse cultures. And here's why oil and gas is important. In this political environment, oh my heavens, it's insane. But energy has got to become politically agnostic. Um, so, you know, what's your thoughts on how we can start to try and, you know, get some of those non-traditional allies on board and to help them understand the actual energy story? I think that's a great question and a challenge in many ways. Uh, people like me, I think, in the sector would love for the, the information to be uh, fully appreciated, mm -hmm. but maybe don't know how to do it or have the time or the, the know-how or the confidence uh, to, to perhaps even to do it. Association work like you've been doing are giving us that, that platform and uh, having those fly-ins where you're going in and, and meeting with uh, congressional staff and, and all parts of the, you know, the legislation, uh, right. the legislators and, uh, and regulators. Is, is a good move because I do think these are good people as well who mm -hmm. want to know the, sto the full story 
And I think we've been too timid sometimes about telling it. It's just, I agree. You feel like you're getting beat up or kicked a little bit, and you go, well, maybe I'll just keep doing my thing and it'll get yeah. sorted out. But that's not going to probably be the case. And uh, getting organized now and uh, getting our voice in every avenue possible, mm-hmm. things like podcasts, white papers, fly-ins, uh, Letters to our uh, uh, Congress people and also local politicians, I right. think, is all an avenue to do it. We don't always think about local, but you can see how local can have an impact on the business. In some states, it's already a problem oh, or man, issue. Certainly at the state level, you know, we're already starting to see it. You know, there, there's a lot of question around, OK, if we do see a Biden administration, what's going to happen, you know, there as far as, um, you know, social justice requirements per project? That's already happening at the state level. Like, regardless of what happens in November, we are approaching that at the state level at, at a lot of states. Yes. Um, and so the industry has to be prepared for that. And and that, I think, gets back to really trying to, you know, focus on that message that we've been talking about, but also being smart, um, you know, about what tactics progressives maybe have used to vilify oil and gas. Um, but I think definitely at the state level, it's critical. It, it is. I, I think that. Maybe all of us have gotten a bit spoiled by the fact that hydrocarbon or energy has become so affordable or so inexpensive. It doesn't have to be that way. It might not always be that way. We've just been through a technology technology phase where uh, we got real smart and real good in petroleum engineering, and we got a lot of supply on the market. Uh, and there's been a lot of times where that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. And globally right now, uh, for whatever reasons, there's a lot of uh, underinvestment going on uh, in reservoirs, not only in the United States, but all over the planet, you know, down 70 percent from 2014, for example. Right. Oil and gas takes a while to from the point you start investing to you start realizing the production. And, you know, there's a lag period there. And when you look into the future, you're going to see some of that. So what I'm afraid of, if. Anybody takes too hard of a position one way or the other that when time progresses, there could be a regret phase where you say, you know what, we did that and made it so difficult that we quit drilling in this particular area. You know, now our costs are triple or our energy prices are triple. And, uh, you know, I can't go do everything I want to do because I don't have the same amount of money to do it. That's a factor. I'm sorry that it just has to be on the table in my in my own personal view. I agree 100 percent. And I think we have seen it proven that higher energy prices and higher gasoline prices disproportionately affect commu- lower income communities. It does. It, it does the exact opposite of what we were trying to get done. It does. And we've as a sector and as an industry, we've continually demonstrated that we do the right thing. I mean, if you take a look at renewables, if you've, if you've, if you've driven through Texas or Oklahoma, in the recent years, you can go for an hour or two driving at the speed limit on major highways and never be out of sight of a windmill. I mean, the, the, we're investing in everything. I mean, our sec, our economy is investing in solar and wind aggressively, and it's it's a good thing. It's a great thing, but it's not uh, the only thing. And the transition is going to occur, and we're becoming more and more uh, responsible, but we've always been responsible. But we're going to be more and more out there talking about the narrative about what we have been and are doing. I agree. And there are such elements 
within all the renewables that depend on natural gas and petrochemicals. I mean, when you look at solar batteries, like where that comes from, the transportation and logistics that it takes to make that happen, you know, and I'm starting to see more and more people talking about that. Um, But again, I hope that the narrative starts to get around. It's identifying the mix and the mix is different regionally. You know, it it depends if you're a community isolated in in sub-Saharan Africa, maybe solar works there. You know, if you are in Latin America in certain certain areas, hydro works there. You know, it's it's geographically specific um, and it's scale specific. And I'd love to talk about this. And one of the things, you know, that we do at PISA with how we train the foreign service officers, it's amazing to watch these incredibly intelligent people go through a week of industry training and having started the week with questions like, you know, well, why can't we build a ladder to go from the rig um, down to the bottom of the subsea floor to check that equipment to understand the scale of what we do, yes. right? And then on U.S. land, I mean, it's the same thing. Yes. You know, the scale of what we do is so impressive and how we've been able to deliver it and the technologies behind it, we should be proud of. We should. When you think about deep water, like, I mean, this is like space. When they're doing subsea and yeah. Two miles deep water. The and, same uh, and harsh conditions. I mean, this is like uh, technology that is super underappreciated by the, the average uh, person. And that's our fault, partially, for not doing a better job, perhaps, of communicating. And I, I think that whether it be U.S. land or West Africa or deep water Gulf of Mexico or, you know, Colombia, we are going to need all the energy over the lifespan of the human race, I think, in we just need to be smart about the whole thing. And I hope everybody kept on a smart, open mind about it, that we'll get to the right decisions as a group like we usually do. Just not let, you know, any one particular loud voice be the one that drives us in the wrong direction too fast. I, I think that's the perfect punctuation point for for what we've been talking about. Yes. So we started kind of talking about the the pandemic and quarantine. What's What's been your kind of learning from being quarantined at home. What's been your favorite part? You can't watch football. I know you're from Alabama, but it's starting up again. Thank goodness. So even if we talked about maybe it's a few people in the stadiums watching. I know baseball is weird for me to watch because I don't like looking at those cardboard cutouts. That's very strange. It feels weird to me. Me too. <laughs> well, look, the pandemic has brought, you know, uh, a different view on, on a number of things. I like to try to find the positive and, you know, one thing is that not a lot of traffic in Houston. That's, that's been true. that's been easy for my commute is much much <laughs> improved. But I would also say this is that uh, maybe I opened my mind up a bit about how to work from home. Not for not just me, but the whole company, mm-hmm. and that providing some flexibility that allow people to do as I mentioned before. You know, the task related stuff from home. You know, we we have the ability to uh, to measure our productivity. So why don't we just use these tools and give people more flexibility? Wouldn't you like to work to a place when you didn't have to? I mean, you got a little flexibility. I do, and yep. I think other people have. So I, I think I learned that uh, I can be a little more flexible that way. You know, the downsides are perhaps obvious, but I have been on a number of planes in the in the last uh, several months. In fact, and uh, I would say my hat's off to the airline industry for the way they protected us all. I mean, at the end of the day, no middle seats, felt like I'm in 
business class or something when I'm flying <laughs> uh, my little short flights around the U.S., you know, all domestic. But at the end of the day is that uh, this, the people and the economy have been resilient. We didn't know what to believe. The data's everywhere. Uh, the noise is loud. But I think we're kind of coming to uh, the point where we, we got this thing under under control, I think. We're starting to see, like you say, sports on TV. People go, if they can do that, you know, I believe I can go do this and as long as I practice smart social distancing mm-hmm. I, and I wear my mask when I'm in a tight confinement mm-hmm. and uh, I just use a little bit of common sense. Again, I think people are smart enough to make their own decisions given the right data. That's right. And I've seen that too with my kids at school. You know, they come home and they're like, Mama, I don't get too close to anybody really. You know, there's hallways have one direction flow of traffic. They have, you know, they're all in their masks. They're having their lunch at their desk. I have, I agree with you to watch all of us kind of come together and try and manage this the best we can, especially healthcare professionals. Yes. um, Has been pretty amazing. It has. Best friend in the world is a doctor. And so you got real, real nervous there in in the beginning. Um, But she and her husband, you know, just been part of this. And and you have to take your hats off to all that. And thank them. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Because, I mean, the risk profile that you had, you didn't know what you really had, but you were there. And, you know, it took care of a lot of people. And if it wasn't for for them, we would not be where we are today, even before the COVID struck. I agree. Well, Robert, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your leadership in the Oldfield Services space, for everything you do for all of us, certainly your leadership on the Peace Board, um, and for taking a chance on coming on my podcast. Well, thank you, Leslie. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't, It's not every day I work with such a good professional, but this does not look like thank your second you. try. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, all right. You. I'm giving Josh and David a run for their money. <laughs> um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We're out for now. Uh, Please reach out with any questions, comments, or positive feedback to um, lbuyerenergyandtransition.com. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.